The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, with my guest Tom Hill of Big Life Foundation, we're again going to address the age-old question of how do people live with carnivores, specifically African people with the African lion, who have become more and more accustomed to liking beef. It's easy prey, and how do we protect not only the pastoralist lifestyle, but also the lions. Please visit biglife.org and go to Area of Operations and then to Man versus Wildlife. You will see an image of a community with a slain lioness. That image pretty much says it all. Many of us here in our safe urban lives still do not understand the economics and the challenges of living with large carnivores. This, combined with our world of rapidly shrinking habitat for wild carnivores and declining lion populations and an increase number of humans, we are head-to-head with the consequences of facing both. Finding creative and doable, non-lethal methods to engage pastoralist communities that address protecting small stock and cattle from large carnivores toward lion conservation is critical to the continuation of the species and for the people who live with them. Lights, bomas, fences, fires, flattery, and better livestock husbandry are all critical players in reducing human-lion livestock conflict and resolution. However, none of them specifically address the carnivore's desire to eat meat. So the lions continue to increase their efforts and often outsmart most non-lethal measures implemented. And once the meat source is acquired for the first time, then it becomes a permanent part of Lion School 101, rather than the natural play, prey that has often been removed from the landscape due to more and more cattle, and cows, and people, and so too the herders, often young children out there with the livestock. So, we're going to discuss this today with my guest, Tom Hill of Big Life Foundation. Welcome, Tom. I'm very well. Well, Thank we're you. Talk, we're talking to you in Kenya, so it's in the evening for you and in the morning for me. So um, to help our listeners understand a little bit more of how you fit into this picture in Big Life, because we spoke with Nick Brandt a couple of weeks ago and very, very well created the visual story of how Big Life Foundation came about. But how do you fit into this picture? Tell us a little about your background and how that brought you to Kenya. Ellie, I um, I 
grew up in Texas um, and moved to New York when I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania graduate business school. And I spent my first career as a business entrepreneur uh, in the U.S. and Europe. And uh, the business I was in was creating um, something that, uh, believe it or not, we called interactive mass media. But it was back in the late 60s and the 70s. So we were uh, way ahead of the curve on the Internet and digital technology, but we did create dialogue between millions of consumers and uh, our clients who were the big companies that sell products in supermarkets and so forth. Um, and we we created the first kind of uh, uh, database interactive process that today on the uh, <laughs> On the internet, takes uh, one keystroke. It used to take uh, weeks to get information back through the mail and process it and and respond back to the consumer. But but we we were early pioneers of what is now, of course, the interactive age. And um, I did that for 20 years or so, and um, had no intention whatsoever of ending up living in Africa and working in conservation. But that's the way life goes. Uh, you never know. So yeah. you you started out in big business and was a pioneer yeah. in what is now the digital age. So that's a story mm-hmm. in itself right there that so many young people, I'd say, in their 30s today really can't even conceptualize a computer that took mm-hmm. the, the size of a huge room. And Arthur C. Clarke talking about that one day we would be able to have all this in our hand and be able to work from mm-hmm. anywhere and talk from anywhere, which is exactly what we're doing today. So, um, But your uh, background doesn't usually, as you just said, highlight that you would have ended up in Kenya as the um, leader and conceptualizer of several now well-known Kenyan conservation activities, such as the Predator Compensation Fund, the Maasai Land Preservation Trust, and the Maasai Olympics, uh, all of which I know well, but I did not know that you were behind them. So how did that come together? Well, the key word there, I think, is entrepreneur. You know, I... um I've always created my own uh, businesses. I actually also then got involved in nonprofit entrepreneurship um, years ago and was a co-founder of the Institute of Human Origins with Don Johansson, uh, which is now at Arizona State University, and then the Trust for African Rock Art with a fellow named David Colson to preserve and archive the history of the original art of mankind here in uh, Africa. So when I came to the Chulu Hills here near Mount Kilimanjaro in southeastern Kenya in 1996, I met uh, Richard Bonham, and he had been here for 10 years and had started a tourism operation and had just begun to have a conservation foundation called Maasai Land Preservation Trust that he and his sister uh, started. And it was still very small when I arrived. And Richard and I went on a a week um, camping 
trip walking across this brilliant area at the base of Kilimanjaro. And Richard didn't say anything other than uh, yes, 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 when I kept saying this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen until near the end. And then he said, well, Tom, this place is about to uh, be overwhelmed by all the forces of modern times. And there are too many uh, factors here that are driving the natural world into degradation. Uh, the wildlife's being poached. It's being killed off. The, the human pressures are increasing. Uh, trees, water, grass, you know, kind of everything you could imagine were going the wrong direction. And so uh, I said, Richard, my God, what, uh, what do you do about that? And he said, well, there has to be a major intervention um, to engage the people in conservation and uh, prevent this from continuing. Otherwise, this great ecosystem here between Ambicelli and Savo and Kilimanjaro is going to be destroyed. So I'll never forget, he said, take your last look. Um, and I said, I, uh, I don't want to think about that, Richard. What, what could we do to prevent that? Um, so, you know, I, that was the challenge, you know, how do we, how do we actually, uh, preserve a two million, two and a half million acre ecosystem, um, under all these different pressures? That was the, the trigger for me was how do you solve this problem? I mean, and, um, not having a background in, in conservation, whatsoever. I was still uh, intrigued by the idea of how, how would we go about actually doing that. And, uh, and so we started in 96. And the, the first thing that we needed to do was to uh, protect animals from game meat poaching. And we created a, uh, what we then called Game Scout uh, group and put them out in the bush in order to monitor um, wildlife activity and to uh, catch poachers <laughs> and uh, remove snares and save animals from poaching. And um, once we got enough rangers, and we call them rangers now at Big Life, uh, in the field, um, we also became aware that the lions were being killed at a shocking rate um, and half of them were dying from poison. So it wasn't about warrior manhood. It was about something far more sinister. And um, so Richard and I began talking to the people and uh, there's another con uh, connection there because um, you know, I, I was in the business of uh, interactive media and feedback and making decisions based on listening um, and then forming a solution based on what the people actually were saying. And Richard, being a native Kenyan um, and growing up in the bush, fully understood the same thing by his, uh, his experiences with traditional people in which you talk and you listen and you talk and you listen. So we 
we did that very thing together. And we spent months meeting with Maasai across this whole region and asking them, why are you killing all the lions? Why are you poisoning lions? And they basically told us that they could no longer afford to live with lions. Um, And that word afford was a new word uh, in the late 1990s that my side no longer were thinking of their livestock as dowry or status, but they were thinking of it, them as money and they were becoming consumers. Of course, today, every Maasai here has a cell phone. They have to buy credit. Uh, They like motorbikes and cars and uh, some like Western clothes and, of course, hospital care. So uh, the impacts of the 21st century were uh, here, and uh, it meant that uh, the solution was going to be something based on economics. And uh, they kept saying to us, we cannot afford. So we said, well, what would cause you to stop doing this and allow the lions to repopulate? And they said, well, if we could replace our livestock, at least partially, even if uh, not fully, we would stop killing them. We'd stop killing all the predators if, if we were uh, given some form of compensation so we could repopulate our livestock. And that was the beginning of the Predator Compensation Fund. Um, it was their idea. Um, and that's so critical um, to understand why this has been so successful is because it was their idea. And we simply shaped it into something that would work for both sides, which was to say, well, yes, we're gonna, we will compensate you if a lion, a cheetah, a, a hyena, a, or leopard or whatever kills your livestock. If we verify that that has truly been the case and we can do it fast enough and you play your part, um, then we will give you compensation for those kills and you can buy more livestock. But if anyone kills a lion or a cheetah or or any of the major predators, we're not going to pay you. Uh, This is not a welfare program. It is a program to save the predators and to, at the same time, uh, give you the economic recovery to allow you to continue your traditional pastoralist way of life and live with tolerance with these uh, very dangerous animals. And as you you said, I mean, uh, people who don't live here just have no idea how, how frightening and dangerous it is to live on the ground with these animals and all you have is a spear and a little bit of a fire at night and they're coming inside of your home not only to kill your animals but maybe kill your children your wife yourself Um, so uh, it's a very serious thing and it is extraordinary that uh, the Maasai 
still to this day are willing to take that risk as long as they are receiving some compensation for their wildlife, I mean, for their livestock. And it has been, you know, a transformative thing. Um, We're now 13 years into it. That's amazing. So um, you mentioned several very critical points during uh, this conversation so far. Uh, The first one I took note of is intervention to engage people, not having a background Mm -hmm. in conservation. Well, we all typically, you know, romanticize the Maasai and we see them in their shukas and their sticks standing on one leg overlooking these vast plains. So that brings in point two that you just said, huge areas of bushland where wild animals live. They live there in numbers that we don't see in on this continent, United States, or even in Europe, in the numbers that we used to see. So living with wildlife in Africa is very different, and we are very separated from that. We can go to the corner store, and it's all wrapped up nice and neat and plastic, and we don't have to deal with being attacked by a lion on our one-block walk, because it's paved, it's streets, it's lighted, it's everything. Where you're living and where uh, rural people live, the pastoralists, is none of that. And animals move, especially carnivores. Carnivores track what is going to be easy meat. So you had also said that um, and in our conversation with Nick Brandt a while back, human population is growing. Buffer zones around protected areas, a place like Ambicelli, um, is being encroached upon. It's got so many pressures from the outside um, that being a national park and being protected doesn't necessarily mean much today uh, because cattle are coming into these areas at night and feeding on the rich grasses that wild and competing with wildlife so carnivores lions they learn easily so to go back to my question intervention to engage people one would think conservation without the big c as we see it now has always been a lifestyle with tribal peoples they have always lived in this engagement and give-and-take relationship with nature. So when you talk about intervention to engage people, uh, not having a background in conservation, actually I believe they do have a background in living with nature, but how do you implement that from listening? And you also said a very critical point, talking and listening, which is critical in any conservation. You can't just implement conservation onto a person without them understanding the conceptual background thought box that this is coming from. Mm -hmm. So, A, how Mm -hmm. did you define this as conservation, and how did you bring their natural life ways and lifestyles and living with the land to to the point of saying, let's not kill lions and have that be accepted? Yeah, um, you're you're very right, Ellie. The... um the Maasai who we work with are natural conservationists, have been since they've been here for 500 years. Uh, otherwise, these animals wouldn't be here. I mean, don't forget the Maasai don't eat wild game. So were, had they done so, you know, we wouldn't have the gazelles and the eland and the, all these animal elephants uh, that are here. Um, and it is uh, to their everlasting credit that they are natural conservationists. But um, so given the pressures that I'm just going to interject. Feeling, so it really is 
the westernization of this bright shiny western model cell phones tvs shoes all those kinds of mm. things that they want that mm-hmm. created the 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 hook point the rub where you had to go back and redefine conservation uh that's very well put yeah i mean uh and and don't forget of course as you said earlier too uh and nick said to you um the the human population has grown so much the uh the the amount of wilderness is shrinking farming is coming in um more people more livestock more pressure uh, on the land and the and the uh, predators and and the prey animals, and then you have this enormous uh, cultural uh, impact. You know, the Maasai lived with uh, Westerners for a hundred years uh, when the British first came here, but they never really adopted any of their uh, ways of life until about the time we. We started this project, and they finally decided, like most people in the world, that, yeah, they would like, you know, Western clothes, uh, shoes from China, cell phones, got to have credit to use a cell phone, motorbikes and things, and they became consumers, and that that was a tipping point. So that certainly is sudden, a tipping so point. So economics. Hmm? That certainly is the tipping point because it it switched from a benchmark of health being wealth, health of the landscape, health of the family, to coin, Mm -hmm. dollar, uh, shilling, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, to being the Mm -hmm. definition of wealth. So therefore started Mm -hmm. the decline of what we're seeing now across Africa. We switched everything from Mm -hmm. the economics of a healthy landscape and a healthy ecosystem to that of your pocket being full. Yes, and of course, healthcare, and they really do understand uh, the importance of education, and they need to pay for their children to be educated in this uh, modern world. The 21st century is a very different world, even in rural Africa. Uh, So um, all those pressures led to the idea that uh, cattle and and goats and sheep were money and and they needed to be transferable between the two so that when you needed money you could sell your cow and buy uh, whatever you wanted to buy and that that brought this really to a head that uh, the only way to truly change the mindset of the people about killing predators was to provide a really significant economic solution um, and not just for a few people but for the entire community we have 60,000 Maasai today living under the protection of our predator compensation fund uh, across a million acres of this uh, ecosystem so um, it's not just ones and twos and small areas. It, you really need to engage the entire population in a program that everyone agrees to, or even if some don't agree, the rules of the program are such that 
those that don't want to agree are kind of forced to agree because their neighbors will lose money if they go out and kill lions or cheetahs. And that puts all of us on the same side of the question. It really does put the skill sets that you had in creating business to bringing that into a community where that kind of mindset and conceptualization didn't really exist, where the consumerism had already begun, but the the understanding of how to modify or manage the consumerism hadn't been Mm -hmm. emplaced along with it. Well, that's a good point. I mean, Richard, <clears throat> Richard and I, uh, as I said, spent many months talking uh, about this. And, and as you say, as a business agreement, basically, you know, that there were two <clears throat> parties involved. The, the Maasai with their livestock being threatened by predators. And Richard and I, Maasai Land Preservation Trust, as um, a conservation organization whose purpose was to preserve the predators. But we understood that the only way to do that was to provide economic benefits to the people under terms and conditions which satisfied both parties. So, you know, the, the Predator Compensation Fund is a legal agreement with 27 major clauses about penalties, uh, and uh, pricing and reporting uh, depredations and on and on that, um, you, you know, you would, you would look at absolutely as a business contract. And, uh, and they agreed to that and we agreed to that and we enforced those rules. And so, yes, it, it, it did bring the discipline of a sort of a business approach to conservation, that let's make an agreement where we both win. This is fascinating, and right now we have to step uh, away to take a short break. So I do want to pick up on several points that you've just uh, talked about in the first section of this program. So listeners, please check out biglife.org and learn about what Big Life is doing, the area that they're operating in, and take some time perusing through the website. Especially, as I'd said earlier, the man versus wildlife, we're running out of space, and the human-wildlife conflict. And uh, we'll be right back with my guest, Tom Hill of Big Life, so stick with us. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. 
We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my amazing guest, Tom Hill, with Big Life Foundation. So we had talked, uh, spoke with Nick Brandt previously, so please don't uh, go listen to his episode because he talks about the visuals and when you see what is happening in Africa and the loss of diversity and the loss of wildlife in these areas, it is visceral and you'll understand why what people like Tom and Nick Brandt and Richard Bonham and Big Life is doing is so critical on these huge landscapes such as Amboseli National Park and the ecosystem that surrounds it. So before the break, Tom, we were talking about the success of the uh, Predator Compensation Fund. So I have a couple of Mm -hmm. questions. Um, In many other places throughout Africa, these compensation funds become black holes and money pits because um, mm-hmm. everybody as we had talked about earlier we now have this consumer society uh, even in the Maasai that they want western things and they've managed to mix this well with their cultural lifestyle historical and you'd said you have a verification system and that you have a contract mm-hmm. so that brings up two questions how was that um, communicated to the community. How did you get them all on board with this this written contract? Yeah, uh, Ali, first, it's two million some odd acres. It surrounds uh, the Mount Kilimanjaro area. Um, so it's the a further buffer zone question. around Amboseli then? Oh, yeah. No, it connects Amboseli to Savo to the Chulu Hills. We have three national parks here in Kilimanjaro. The people live in the middle, like the whole of a donut, and uh, they, uh, you know, all the all the animals move. There are no lot, there are no fences, so the animals don't know if they're in the national park or they're on my side pastoral land. And the conflict occurs in the middle of the donut, and that's where these 150,000 people live uh, that we engage uh, with. Um, you ask, how do we verify? Um, we do it in a very, you know, kind of uh, police-like investigation. Uh, very strict rules. How do we educate people? And the answer is film. And the film we have, which is called "We Don't Kill Lions Anymore," um, is in Ma, their language. It was shot here. It is strictly an educational film. And it explains all of these rules and and reasons behind those rules to them. It visualizes 
the the situations. It shows a verification happening. It it interviews people who support the program. It explains every one of these, uh, as you say, Western uh, terms uh, in ways they fully can understand. And you, we've shown this film for years to thousands and thousands of people, and they know the rules. So um, That's I just the have way one quick it. question. Uh, can you make this film available to us and Our Wild sure. World so that we can link it to the program so our listeners and yeah. the rest of the world can understand just what it is you're talking about and visualize what it is you have to go through to help conservation because I think it will help us understand in our own situations here and battles with loss of wildlife and diversity and human population and encroaching on natural wild areas. I would be great if we could link this conversation yeah. to that film. Be happy to. Um, and, and the good news is it has English subtitles. Even better. Great. <laughs> I think it's fabulous mm -hmm. that you've done this film. And you have another one that you did there too, correct? That's right. And that Yes. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to briefly say that when – Predator Compensation Fund was introduced into this ecosystem in 2003, lion killing virtually stopped. Wow. Um, it dropped by 90% plus. And it was then introduced four years later on another uh, bordering uh, Maasai Group ranch. Same thing happened. Introduced in 2008 on another bordering group ranch. Same thing happened. Okay, uh, wait, wait a minute. Let's it, back up. Why did it drop? Was it through the verification process or through the education or a combination of both? No, well, it's through the agreement. I mean, don't forget. I mean, the, the, okay. the, community, leader, the community leaders across the whole region, you know, came to these understand and to communicate to their people that we kill lions no more. We uh, we we receive compensation instead, and if anyone kills lions, we're going to all be penalized for it, which is part of the agreement. But that's what caused them to stop. I mean, they had an alternative, and it wasn't just a small scale uh, exercise of some kind. It was for the entire community, every livestock owner who loses. Their livestock to predators receives compensation. It is a community-wide, ecosystem-wide program. Well, and right there, that's very critical because that. it's very critical because you're treating everything equally, and it's and yeah. as we talked about, you know, compensation for killing of livestock by wildlife can be a money pit. So I'm not necessarily asking you for exact figures, but doesn't this get well, expensive? Well, no. Uh, well, I mean, I um, I was also in the insurance business in my entrepreneurial life. And what predator compensation is, is nothing more than an insurance program um, with one huge difference. The people don't pay the premium. Uh, the first world pays the premium because, uh, and as the UN has said, uh, you know, uh, payment for ecosystem services. It is not reasonable for these people to suffer these huge losses of their personal wealth being wiped out 
while we sit and watch TV shows about lions, you know, on National Geographic in America or whatever, and these people are being destroyed by it. So there has to be some transfer of value from those of us who care about saving the natural world and these people who are being hit extremely hard in cases by depredation. Now, you ask, what does it cost? Because it's an insurance-type scheme, but we pay the premium. That's the trick, and they don't kill. That's what they pay. Um, We pay $5 per year per person across this ecosystem, and as a result, uh, predator killing dropped so dramatically from the time this program was introduced that the lion population has come back from near extinction to today, you know, nobody knows exact numbers, but we now have what Kenny Wildlife Service says is over 130 lions in this area again. Um, Population has completely been regenerated. Um, So um, let me interject here a second. So you've brought back a lion population, which is a fabulous success story. You've implemented an insurance type scheme, which is a fabulous success mm -hmm. story. But with both of those Mm -hmm. going on with more lions, are you finding more conflict Mm -hmm. with lions in livestock? You know, it's funny. um, Yes. I mean, you have to increase the amount of conflict at some point. But the other thing, which is a a longer story, but, you know, lions are not the major killer of livestock here. Hyenas are the problem. Uh, Cheetahs are second. Lions are, are, we only pay about 12 to 14% of our compensation for lions. They are not the major killer. So even though the population has increased dramatically, we haven't seen huge increases in lion depredation uh, over that period. Um, But yes, I mean, it's an inevitable price of success that you're going to have more pressure, but it's nothing like a lot of the papers you might have read about, oh my God, you know, all these terrible things are going to happen. None of them have happened. And the program has just continued into its now 14th year with enormous success the lion killing and predator killing is very low, and um, we verify very stringently. And the, the people pay part of the claims. That's another rule. We're not the only ones paying for these claims. The people themselves contribute to the claims. So uh, the leadership of the communities and Big Life Foundation work together on on this totally. And... Um, and we're on the same side of the table uh, as to if somebody's trying to cheat or, or whatever, and it has worked very effectively. Imagine, Ellie, just if you look at the total costs, um, you know, imagine just paying everyone in a community $5 a year and saying, for this, you're going to stop killing predators. You're going to preserve the lion population, which was at virtual extinction in 2003. And imagine how cost-effective that is. You can't hold a, you know, a meeting under a tree 
uh, and talk to people and give them something to eat and some sodas to drink without paying $5. And that's the cost of the program per person per year. We need to understand here also that $5 in Kenya shillings to a person in a rural community goes a very, very long way. It's not just a latte and it's not... Um, just a glass, uh, you know, a bottle of water. It, it has a very different yeah. um, economic place than, let's say, five dollars here in Aspen, Colorado. So that is a point yeah. for our listeners to understand that donate to Big Life because your five dollars. If you donated five dollars to listening to this program, mm-hmm. all of our hundred thousand, two hundred thousand yeah. listeners across the globe. You can imagine what $5 by each of my listeners could make a difference in an ecosystem such as the one Big Life is working in. That's huge. And it's successful, as we've just understand. When everybody is symbiotic and on the same side of the table and everything is working, conservation has success. And I'm talking about conservation as a life way, as a lifestyle, not something being implemented upon you against your will and having to sacrifice. Conservation today and moving forward is coming together and finding new models that work. And what Big Life has done is simply amazing. And I'm kind of astonished that it's not working elsewhere. Um, So I'm going to wing this at you from left field. Do you have plans of expanding Big Life to any other areas and um, uh, seeing if this model works elsewhere? Or are your hands full just dealing with with what you want to do here and bring more benefit to the community that you're in? Because that's a big, uh, that's a big question for yeah, a successful yeah. organization. Ellie, it's a great question. Um, let me just clarify one last point about the $5 per person. That's what it is. So, yes, if, if your listeners were to give us $5, it would be one person's uh, you know, equivalency. Um, of this and that program. that one person and has 10 dependents. So that $5 yeah, exactly, exponentially but, grows. So for but, every $5, you are exponentially yeah. increasing the effect of that $5. Yeah. But the, but the money is not distributed $5 to every person. You understand? Right. That's what the word insurance means. That what, like life insurance or property insurance or any other form of insurance, you only pay the people who suffer the losses. Right. And um, most people don't suffer losses, you know, during the course of the year. So when some poor uh, livestock owner loses 15 cows or 30 goats, we pay him all that money. But there are another 100 or 200, 300 people who never had a, a claim during that year. So we pay them nothing. That's why it's so efficient. You know, that's that's the point. This is fabulous. I love love that you um, summarize it or equalize it or referred it to as insurance because it gives Mm -hmm. a whole new meaning to the word insurance Mm -hmm. in terms of Mm -hmm. how it works in Africa versus buying your car insurance from a late night TV ad. So this this concept (laughs) is really critical and I wish it could be implemented across across the board and I know a lot of other organizations have tried it and failed so um, I guess I'm trying to find the the key to your success well I'm not sure I don't think uh, not sure the terms and conditions of these other programs um, nor their administration 
Good point. Like everything, you know, um, uh, the details are are everything. How do you manage it? How do you enforce the rules? Do you stand up and and walk away if the community doesn't do its part? Do you uh, you know do you enforce rules about lost animals? We don't pay. We we discount. Fifty percent for an animal that's not properly herded. We we discount seventy percent for a boma that's not four feet high, four feet wide. Uh, we we severely penalize people for not taking care of their livestock properly, and then we severely penalize people for killing lions, which the community agrees to. And that's why you know you say. Compensation, compensation, compensation. Well, that is a very broad word, and you know it. You have to really understand the the specific details of the program and the rules and how well they're administered and enforced. So, it is easy to say, "Oh, compensation's not working." Well, whose compensation? Right. What program? What are the What are the terms, conditions, and how well is it administered? So. That's everything, and we are expanding. We, you know, we went from 300,000 acres to 600,000 to a million. We're moving now into hopefully northern Tanzania in the n- near future. We, we have uh, people asking for our program in other parts of Africa. The whole point of our work is to create a model that can be replicated, and um, that's what we're you know, that's what we're about. So, so we're this, here to help. You brought up a good other point. In replicating this model and people asking for it, um, which sort of comes back to this point of conservation colonialism, that it takes white people or Western people to help the poor African come up with these ideas, which is so outmoded and part of the problem because Africans, as we said earlier, live conservation on a day-to-day basis. They are facing the same increased pressures that we're facing, but they're facing them in a different way because they live in a completely different environment. So who's asking? Is it Africans that are asking? And is this model replicable in Ma or other languages so that Africans themselves can begin Mm -hmm. to implement this and then come to you for advice? Yep. Um, yes, yes. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, we haven't mentioned maybe Nick did, but we have over 300 employees here. They're all they're all African. They're all Maasai. They enforce all the rules. They enforce the program. They even uh, adjudicate conflicts resolution uh, among themselves. Uh, there are very few white people involved in this project. Um, and it, this is very much, as I said at the beginning, their idea. It's administered by the local Maasai, and even uh, conflicts are resolved between the community leaders and the livestock owners when there's a there's a dispute over uh, whether this you know cow was lost or was it in a boma or whatever, and how much money someone's going to receive. So. This program is is completely run by Africans. Um, we are uh, certainly the guys that raise the money, and uh, from the first world, and we are certainly involved. 
uh, in the management of the of big life. But uh, you have to understand this is very much being run on the ground by the local people. So and they're, we wholly, employ they're, they're wholly invested in this, and that's what makes yeah. conservation on the ground in Africa or any indigenous area where there where it is wildlife rich and has uh, human wildlife conflict if the local community is not invested or enjoined and you know brought in as um the the takers on of the problem then it's not going to work and that's that's what i've always said without working with the people and if we in the west continue to make wildlife and the loss of wildlife, our primary focus, and not the people who have to live with it, then the models that we're going to try and implement on people to protect wildlife aren't going to work. It's, uh, you know, we often think wildlife first, animal rights, animal welfare, oh, I love animals, but we forget about the people who have to live with it. So listeners, if you missed the first half, do go back, listen to the first uh, half of this, and listen to Nick Brandt, because without people conservation doesn't work wildlife is going to do what it does the conflict comes in when people enter the picture people and our things and the things that we want so conservation truly is about people and people becoming invested so uh let's go a little more into some of the offshoots that have become very successful mm-hmm. we have uh, uh well, we have a few minutes left about the um okay. the maasai olympics let me, let me yeah, let me tell you, I mean, the direct uh, result of what you just said, that the community is totally engaged and supports our conservation work because it produces jobs, it, we provide health care, we provide education, we provide compensation for livestock, uh, we've made an economic impact that makes conservation their preferred way of life. Uh, that's the only way this works. That's really and, important. That's really, really And then I'm not sure if you understand yeah. how critical that point you just made is. So when we yeah. here in the West donate our $5, you can't expect mm-hmm. the Africans to pay for their wildlife. You know, this whole, if it pays, it stays, and wildlife has to pay mm-hmm. for itself. It doesn't raise mm-hmm. money by itself. It doesn't have a job. doesn't have pockets. It can't hold money. All it does is move, eat, sleep, and do what mm-hmm. it needs to do. We need to create the space for it. So we in the West, the wealthy world, the wealthy component, we do have to support this wildlife we care about so that it doesn't create the conflict for the person who has nothing other than their livestock and conflict with wildlife. And that that's a really critical point. So when you donate to wildlife conservation projects, listeners, do your due diligence and find out what the, what the project is doing, how they function, and make informed choices of where your $5 is going to go. Because it can be, it, it can go towards the glossy year-end report, or it can go to pay for a community, and as uh, Tom has just been saying, this insurance program where people are wholly invested in making it work. So we have our responsibility as donors here in the West to do the best we can with and get the biggest bang for our buck. So I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I think that's a really critical point. Um, so let, I, we've got a few minutes here left. Um, tell us a little bit about the Maasai Olympics and how that came about. Yeah, well, 
great. And thank you for saying what you just said. Um, we obviously are always looking for funding and donors and people who support our work in Africa and the natural world. Um, Maasai Olympics came straight out of the Predator Compensation Fund. One day, a group of elders came to my cottage here and un unannounced and said, uh, Tom, you and Richard have uh, had so much uh, influence on us as regarding conservation and preserving our predators and lions in particular that we want to do something you couldn't do. We want to take this to another level uh, ourselves. And what we want to do is we are the fathers of the next warrior generation, uh, which was coming into power <clears throat> in 2012. And they would be in power for 15 years. Uh, and he, they said, we are the, their teachers and we're going to teach them that lion hunting is a taboo. This has never happened in the history of the Maasai people. The spiritual leader of the Maasai people, incidentally, later supported us. And they, he is also in our film that you were mentioning earlier about the Maasai Olympics telling this new generation of warriors, 5,000 across the ecosystem, they can not kill lions, that it is no longer acceptable, that they must accept conservation as their future or it will destroy our way of life and we'll lose our land. Um, the Maasai Olympics itself was an alternative to lion hunting. It was, again, the, the, the Maasai idea. And when they said to me, don't uh, boys around the world compete for girlfriends through sports? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, uh, you know, where I grew up, yes, uh, that's exactly what happened. And um, they said, so we want you to help us, you and Richard and Big Life Foundation, to help us create some form of sporting event that would be an alternative to lion hunting for these warriors. And we thought about it, talked about it, discussed it, collaborated, and that's where the Maasai Olympics came from, which is a series of events that use Maasai warrior skills, throwing a spear. Well, don't throw a spear lion, throw a javelin for distance, uh, like in the Olympics. Uh, don't just jump in your dancing, uh, which is traditional Maasai warrior dancing, but jump up and try to touch a, a string at a certain height. <laughs> And then we keep raising it until the winner is the guy that jumps the highest. This, uh, this we is do fabulous. running events. We have, um, yeah. It's and so, so running, jumping. We've created a outside warrior Olympics. It basically is what it, what it amounts this to. This is great. And we're having, yeah, it comes up again in December this year. Uh, our finals, we, we it runs all the year. We run this another film called there will always be lions uh which i can also give you and uh it it discusses the whole ethos of uh conservation and the idea that uh athletics is a alternative way for young men to show their skills 
establish leadership and, uh, you know, attract girlfriends uh, like uh, the rest of the world. And athletics have not been a part of my side culture. It's, it's not, a great new yeah. conservation model to show skills, highlight culture, mm-hmm. bring it all together, and leave lions out of the picture, the killing of lions out of the picture. So, unfortunately, I wish we could talk forever, but we're out of time today. So, I think we covered a lot of territory and um, helped create some linkages of why conservation works when you listen to the local people and understand the problem from their point of view. And uh, with the environment, the geography, and the wildlife they have to live with, along with the spread out Uh, vastness of the area that you're working in. So, Tom, I thank you so much. This has been a great program. Well, you're welcome. Ellie, enjoyed it. And um, I hope to be able to visit you when I head to Kenya later this year. I know you've been visiting with our film crew on the ground, Tim Gorski and Rattle the Cage Productions. So I look forward to getting Mm -hmm. these films from you and linking them to this program so our audiences can see how this works out. But right now, we're out of time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Ellie. And this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 